I want to review with you, because today we're going to be wrapping up our part three on the Trinity. And we're taking our time on this concept because I want us to have a a pretty broad, solid foundation for our faith on this particular topic. And if you recall, we started off talking about how some people today are, are prone to reject a belief in the Trinity for reasons such as, well, the Bible never uses the word. Okay, the Bible doesn't use the word. And they're, they're right about that. But the counter to that is, but the Bible clearly teaches the concept of the Trinity. And we walked through the Old Testament and the New Testament, seeing reference after reference, what's alluded to or hinted at in the Old Testament is made much more explicit in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you have the very beginning of Scripture with Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image. You have uh, the uh, Tower of Babel, come let us go down and undo their work, of course. Uh, You have other times where God is speaking and he says, who will go for us? Who will go for us? Uh, You have the the very interesting thing I I find very interesting is Sodom and Gomorrah. When the destruction came, the Lord was down on the ground and it says that the Lord rained fire from the Lord from heaven. So you have the Lord in two places yet doing one activity. It's fascinating. Of course, uh, even our scripture reading today, their inferences, they're singing to the Lord and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All of that is an inference in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it becomes much more explicit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Somehow you can be God and with God at the same time. It becomes more explicit. Uh, you have the concepts of when, when the apostles would sign off their, their letters, you know, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Uh, you see, especially in the baptisms, and I say baptisms plural, Christ's baptism, he was, of course, the Son of God on earth. The Holy Spirit, like a dove, alights on him, and the voice of God comes from heaven saying, this is my Son, whom I am well pleased. You have all three members of the Godhead doing the same activity, but each having a different role in that activity. And then when Christ sends out his apostles, he says, go make more, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So what is alluded to in the Old Testament is made much more explicit in the New Testament. And one other thought I wanted to interject here that we didn't talk about before, but I thought it was worth mentioning. One way, not the only way, of course, but one way that you can tell a good good kind of a litmus test, a little rule of thumb as to whether something is on or off. If Satan's trying to counterfeit it, it must be based on something that's true. Does that make sense? For example, you, you've, you've heard that you, you never see counterfeit $7 bills because there's no original $7 bill. What would be the point, you know? So when you go, and you do this real quick, I know this is just preliminary, but go to Revelation 13, and I want to show you something fascinating. Revelation has, you know, the great end-time battle between Christ and Satan is, is listed out there, and everything that God has true, Satan has a counterfeit. God has a true city, Satan has a true city. God has a, a false city, a counterfeit. God has a, a true day of worship, Satan has his counterfeit day of worship. There's the true woman of Revelation, there's the f- counterfeit, right? And you see, it just as there is Jesus Christ, there is the Antichrist. And just as Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, the Antichrist has his day you know, that wants the world to wander after. There's a counterfeit to God. And in Revelation 13, you see, interestingly enough, 
We're not going to go through it exhaustively, but in chapter 13, it starts off with the, the beast from the sea. Then it moves to the beast from the earth, right? And it's all going back to the dragon. So you have the dragon and the beast from the sea, and then the beast from the earth is the spokesman for the beast from the sea. So you have the dragon, the beast, and what's going to be the, the false prophet. Interesting. And go to Revelation chapter 16 now, verse 13. Again, Satan's counterfeits of God's truth. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And it's almost as though the Lord said, baptize in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, and out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the... It's almost everything that God does correct, that he does, because everything he does is correct to start with, everything God does, Satan counterfeits to peel off allegiance to himself. So wherever Satan has a counterfeit, you should know that God has a corresponding truth. Does that make sense? Okay. So if Satan has gone so far as to counterfeit a trinity, does it not infer that there is a legitimate triune God that's original? There we go. Yet despite what I and hopefully many of you along with me, regard as incredibly solid biblical evidence for a triune God, a one God in three persons. Early Adventist pioneers were staunchly anti-Trinitarian. Why? That's the burden of our message today. This is why we have three messages on this, because I wanted to pull it more, more closely to our time and see the relevance for today. But before we dive into the study of the Word and history, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that you bless us now. Open our hearts to be soft. Open our minds to be sharp. Teach us the lessons you want us to know, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. With such strong biblical evidence, as we've reviewed for several weeks now, why would our Adventist pioneers write not just personally hold, but be adamant against, staunchly, vigorously, vehemently anti-Trinitarian. What was going on there? And again, this is one of those things that I have seen personally Seventh-day Adventists get caught up into even today. They will say things like, well, the Bible never says Trinity, and did you know? And usually when someone says, did you know? That's never going to be a fun conversation. But that our Adventist pioneers were completely against the Trinity as well? Even in our publications, the Review and Herald, the Signs of the Times, they would write out their objections to the Trinity. And here we are in 2013, or whenever they're having this discussion with you, and they will say that our church now teaches the Trinity. Therefore, this is evidence that we are in apostasy. We have drunk the wine of Babylon. We now need a remnant from the remnant. Let me address some of these things just because part of my job, apparently, is to help shepherd the flock and guide. Sometimes, given the end-time scenario that we have and the weight of biblical evidence and, and the, the wonderful blessing of the spirit of prophecy, we, we're very head-knowledge people. And sometimes we can get so looking for this and looking for that that we start wandering off the path we get so, we're driving down the path so fast that we just jump the tracks all together. And conspiracy theory starts being very, very appealing. Very appealing. Like as soon as, ooh, I found an inside knowledge, I'm going to hunt down that. 
like, like chasing a rabbit. And the truth is over here somewhere. We were on the truth, but the next shiny thing showed up. Ooh, and we're off after it. And this has become one of the, the, mo- the most recent one as I've seen floating around the social media just in the last few weeks. Uh, probably, maybe some of you heard about the, the, the Pope has, you know, an Adventist brother. Have you heard that one? Okay. It's not true, ladies and gentlemen. Um, just so you know, the, the, the conspiracy is that, oh, he has an Adventist brother, and they, they got together, and he's read all the, all the testimonies of the church. They've read all the great controversy and stuff, and they know the end-time scenario. And now we're in trouble because this pope knows about us. And in and, and all seriousness, this has been a serious thing that's gone around. Now, can I, can I, let's just stay on the track of truth, okay? First of all, the, the pope is from Argentina, there's a good shot. The South American division is doing phenomenal evangelism, showing the North American division just to pieces, okay? They're doing great work. And the, the, the high percentage of Adventism to the general population is strong down there and growing rapidly. So if you draw the line of any family out far enough, you're going to bump into an Adventist cousin, right? <laughs> Praise the Lord. I hope he has a brother. I hope he's got a sister who's seventh Adventist, and I hope they're getting bigger all the time. But even if that weren't the case, the scenario of Revelation chapter 13 says that God's end-time people are the remnant, Sabbath-keeping, commandment-keeping, spirit of prophecy-holding people of God, and they will be the specific target of the Antichrist power. So if the two great contentious forces at the end are God's remnant people and the Antichrist, is it not already commonly understood that they're aware of each other's existence? We don't need a conspiracy for this. We have Bible truth on it. Now, if you want to have an added, but don't put your trust, put your trust in the Word, and it's going to come true as the Bible has said. Let's just have confidence in that. But so now there's, again, back to our Trinity concept, there are people who say, well, the Trinity's not in the Bible. You know, our Adventist pioneers, and by the way, did you also know the third wagging finger, that Mrs. White never even used the term Trinity in any of her writings. And they're right. She didn't. So you think, man, are we off base on this? What's going on? Let's study it out. Basically, when you look at our Adventist pioneers and their objections to the Trinity come down to what I understand to be two main objections. Number one, they were struggling with a thing called Arianism. Okay? We'll get into that next week. Just put that on a shelf. There's another term that's coming next week, and we're going to have to face it head on. But that's one of the things they struggle with. And they had this problem with language that we've talked about before. And I'll use the analogy again. The word snack to a seven-year-old means something very different than it does to his parent. Okay? The parent's thinking apple the child's thinking brownie, right? And they're both really excited about the snack, but they're not excited about the same thing. They just happen to be using the same word for two different ideas, right? This is one of the problems with our Adventist pioneers in the Trinity. I'm going to read you some excerpts of their writings, of their objections to the Trinity. And what you'll find out is you'll be like, I can't believe they're against the Trinity. Then when they explain why, you're like, oh yeah, you shouldn't be for that. 
right? Because we're using a loaded terminology, especially at that time. For example, J.N. Andrews, as in Andrews University, you know, that one, wrote in 1855. By the way, he was one of our most, most able scholars in the history of our church, yet he was against the Trinity. But he explains why. He says, this doctrine, the Trinity, destroys the personality of God. You're thinking, what? How does it do that? He explains, this doctrine destroys the personality of God and his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's saying the doctrine of the Trinity, and we're going to explain this a little bit more, somehow destroys the personality of God and the personality of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, he's not using the term personality here as we commonly do to mean like sense of humor and things that you prefer or not. He's not talking like that. He's talking about the personhood of God and the personhood of Jesus Christ. Apparently, in their mind, the Trinity concept destroyed the individual personhood of the Father and the Son. It eliminated that. And they said, well, we can't be for that. For instance, Joseph Bates, writing 1848, one of the co-founders of our church, says, we believe that Peter and his master settled this question beyond controversy. And he refers to Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. And I cannot see why Daniel and John have not fully confirmed that Jesus is the Son and not God the Father. Do you see what he's arguing against? He's saying, can you not see plainly from Scripture that Jesus is the Son and that he is not his own Father? That those are two different persons, two different beings. They're not the same God dressing up one time as the Father and then coming again as the Son. He's like, there are two separate beings. And again, that goes back to Jane Andrews' issue of destroying the personality, the personhood of the Father and the Son. The concept of the Trinity they were arguing against is something that many of us, I myself, would argue against as well. Okay. How about this one? In his autobiography, Joseph Bates writes about some of the disagreements he had with his parents' religion. One of them was the concept of the Trinity. He wrote, Respecting the Trinity, I concluded that it was an impossibility for me to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, was also the Almighty God, the Father, one and the same being. It's impossible to me to believe that there's a Son and the Father, but they're just one being, one person. Okay? I said to my father, if you can convince me that we are one in this sense, notice he had no problem with the oneness of God, but one in the sense that they're the identical being, one person. If you can convince me that we are one in the sense that you are my father and I your son, and also that I am your father and you are my son, then I can believe in the Trinity. You see, you, see, you understand what he's rejecting is what we talked about in the first sermon, modalism. Remember we did this whole spectrum of belief about God where there's atheism where you don't believe in God at all, all the way to pantheism where everything is God. Well, in the middle there's this concept of a one God, which I hold to this, that there is one God. But modalism says that there's one God in a rigid singularity sense and that any reference to a Father, a Son, or a Holy Spirit as God is simply that one dressing up and acting the part of those different things in its turn. So sometimes this one will be the Father, then he'll change clothes, 
come down to earth and be the son. Then other times he'll just be the spirit. But it's just the one being presenting himself in different modes. I'll come to you as the father. I'll come to you as the son. I'll come, but it's still just one doing it. Seventh Adventists hold to the biblical, I feel, concept that there's one God in three persons, not as three persons. Do you see the difference? This is what their argument was founded on. Time and again, you see these pioneers arguing the same thing. J.H. Wagner, not E.J. Wagner of 1888 fame, but his father, who was the editor of the Signs of the Time before him, in 1890 wrote, If it should be claimed that he is both father and son in the Trinity then it is evident that there could be no trinity, as he would be but one person with two names. See what he's saying? It's like, that's not a trinity. That's a singularity that just uses different names to address himself at different times. That's not a genuine trinity. Similar objections, by the way, we can go through this, were voiced by such luminaries as Uriah Smith, James White even, very clear. A.T. Jones. Now, follow this one. This is an interesting thing. Writing in the June 16, 1892 edition of the American Sentinel magazine, you have to understand, in the late 1800s, there was a great push to make America religious again. Federally, constitutionally, recognize that we are a Christian nation and embed that into the laws of the land. Sunday laws, those kind of things. You had to make sure you turn church and, you know, then there was a push to put um, spiritual tests on office seekers to make sure they uphold those Christian standards that we're built on. And, of course, the American Sentinel magazine, if I'm not mistaken, is the precursor to what we now know as Liberty magazine. And A.T. Jones was a very powerful advocate for the separation of church and state. He did not like the the incursion of of religious life into the public specter, into the sphere. And so he was, by the way, he testified before Congress. He helped beat back some Sunday laws, namely the Blair Bill. We should do a quarter on Adventist history. We've got to do this. Anyway, he wrote in the American Sindel magazine, decrying the Roman Catholic influence in the destruction of the separation of church and state. Speaking of one of the religious tests he feared would soon be required of office seekers, he he wrote of the acceptance of, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity. But he doesn't stop there. He puts hyphen, the Catholic doctrine of the Trinity, of course. See what I'm saying? He has no problem with the Trinity as long as it's not the one they're talking about. The Catholic doctrine, which is this modalism where you have the rigid singular each dressing up. He said, if that becomes the law of the land, we got problems, folks. We can't put religious tests on these people. And it was interesting that he says the doctrine of the Trinity, the Catholic doctrine of the Trinity, of course. So again, notice what they're rejecting is not the working definition of Trinity we've been going with for the past several weeks, where we have one God in three persons. In fact, it was our established definition of Trinity that they were defending by their rejection of the doctrine of the Trinity. By rejecting Trinity then, they were actually supporting what we've been talking about these last several weeks. Is that clear? Is that making sense at all? Okay, good, good, good. Now, we have not looked at the final piece of the puzzle. We've looked at the Old Testament, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We looked at the New Testament, which was inspired by the same Holy Spirit. Now we're going to look at the pen of inspiration through the writings of Ellen White, which is inspired by the same Holy Spirit. 
Is there a consistency in the approach? Because what we saw, remember, inferred in the Old Testament is made more explicit in the New Testament, and then Mrs. White comes along and just uses a laser beam. Okay? But, like Scripture, she never uses the word Trinity. Now, as far as I understand, you cannot find a place in Mrs. White's writings where she explains why she doesn't use the term Trinity. She doesn't say it. But, given the climate of the times and the other pioneers that were contemporaries with her and their rejection of the so-called Trinity, it would seem very disharmonious to have her come along and make a strong advocate, advocacy for Trinity when they're still thinking brownie instead of apple, right? So instead of employing the term, she does what Scripture already had done, and that's describe it to a T. Listen now carefully, and tell me if this doesn't resonate with you. Also, by the way, just like the Bible makes its most explicit statements in regard to baptism, so does Mrs. White. It's fascinating. Evangelism, page 615. There are three living persons of the heavenly trio. Doesn't say Trinity. But apparently there's three living persons of the heavenly trio in the name of these three great powers, the fa- and then she articulates, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So now we have interchangeable. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each three great powers, each persons, and each dignitaries of heaven may make up a heavenly trio. Okay. Again, there are three living persons of the heavenly trio. In the name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized. And these powers that is, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their efforts to live the new life in Christ. Isn't that beautiful, by the way, that those three powers, it's not like, oh, that's the Holy Spirit's job, God's over here doing this, or Jesus is now doing No, no, no. All three are working for your salvation. It's a powerful thought. Uh, Manuscript Release, Volume 6, page 27. The rite of baptism is administered in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. These three great powers of heaven pledge themselves to be the efficiency of all who submit to this ordinance and who faithfully keep the vow they then make. But on a sideline, isn't that it? How many times do we talk about baptism being your commitment to God? She says, no, 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 that's also his commitment to you. If you come in his name, he's going to support that name because that's his name, right? And now you're in, if you put yourself in his care, he's going to be more faithful to you than you are to him. I guarantee it. Sixth volume of the Bible Commentary, page 1074. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, man is laid in his watery grave, buried with Christ in baptism, and raised from the water to live the new life of loyalty to God. The three great powers in heaven are witnesses. They are invisible, but present. Every soul that has acknowledged his faith in Jesus Christ by baptism has become a receiver of the pledge from the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So notice she's using their names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, interchangeably with three great powers, three great persons, three, uh, we haven't gotten to dignitaries yet, but that one's coming up, the heavenly trio. He goes on to this, let's go to that one. Seventh volume of the Bible commentary, page 959. When you gave yourself to Christ, you made a pledge in the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then she says, dash, dash, the three great personal dignitaries of heaven. 
So if language means anything, she did everything except for say the word Trinity, but she used every other possible word to frame it in so you couldn't escape the truth that there are three great powers who are persons, who are dignitaries, who are individuals, who make up a trio, and they're all working for you. It's a powerful thought. Hold fast to this pledge. And finally, Review and Herald, July 18, 1907. The three powers of the Godhead have pledged their might to carry out the purpose that God had in mind when he gave to the world the unspeakable gift of his Son. The Holy Spirit unites with the powers of grace that God has provided to turn souls to Christ. You notice the the Holy Spirit's going to work in you, what God had planned for you, and what Christ did for you. You see? All three are there. She said, and if you notice that God's two great works, creation and redemption, involve every member of the Godhead. Come let us, is his statement when it comes to creation and recreation. When he brought you into existence and when he brings you out of sin, he's working on your behalf. And that's a powerful thought. So I'm going to conclude with this. God is everything that we need. Good. And I don't mean that in a trite way. I want us to think about that deeply because we need a God who's strong enough and powerful enough to create us and bring us into existence. We need a God who's powerful enough to sustain our existence. We also need a God who can set rules for this place so sin doesn't run forever. We also need a God who can save us when we fall into that trap of sin. We need a God who can work in us, like the power of the Holy Spirit. It's it's powerful how God is exactly what we need to bring us into existence and to pull us out of sin so that someday when we return, we will just be at home once again. Through the unified but distinct persons, God ministers for our salvation. Now, I know that there's more we could talk about at this. Honestly, there's only as far as our our mental arms can stretch around this concept. God's always going to be bigger than us, always going to be smarter than us, and I got no problem with that whatsoever. It would be very, very disconcerting, very unsettling to me if I thought really, really hard and God came and visited me, he's like, hey, you caught up. Now we're peers. That would be the worst day. I'm very glad that there's more that God, that God, that we only have so many words and letters to form so many ideas, but God is a God who didn't just leave us to grope in the dark. He gave us his word. He communicates in language we can understand. And he understands the pitfalls of this life, and he says, I'm working for you if you stay faithful to me. I'm God in heaven. I'm your sacrifice. I'm your substitute. I'm your example. And I'm the power working within you. Just lay yourself in me entirely, and we're going to get through this thing together. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.